0: Thank you for listening to 7 Million Bites, a Vietnam podcast. We share the stories of people with a love for Vietnam. My name is Neil McKay and I'm your host. I love talking to people, but more than anything, I love listening. I've lived in Vietnam since 2016 and started this podcast to know more about the interesting people that live in Saigon, a crazy, bustling, energetic city. Over the seasons, the show has grown, and we now talk to people from all over the world who have a Vietnam story to share. We are joined by the founder of Lambie Orphanage Vietnam. During the Vietnamese War, as a baby, she was found on the street and placed in an orphanage herself. She was then adopted into a white English family, which unfortunately wasn't as happy as hoped. Despite this difficult upbringing, she became a trained chef. Gained a business degree and started a very successful beauty business, but she sold all of her possessions, including a five hundred thousand pound home and sports car, to fund the Alambé Orphanage here in Vietnam. I'm excited to share today the story of my guest, Suzanne T. Hien Book.
1: Yeah, a Lambie orphanage. A lot of people ask me, you know, was it something that I'd always wanted to do? And the answer, truthfully, is no. In 2006, I actually went back to Vietnam for the first time to see my country. And I I went for just a two-week holiday. And I fell in love with Vietnam. She was 16 at the time. And she was like, I just want to go to school nobody loves me, nobody cares about me. She asked me, you know, can you, can you not stay? Or can I come and live with you? And I suddenly realised that actually what I wanted to do was actually give this girl some hope. And I decided there and then to actually open up my own orphanage. When you say you're adopted, their reaction is, oh, isn't that lovely? Your parents must have been lovely people. You must have had a lovely childhood. And... I have to say no. I have tried. Yeah, I've done my DNA. I've done my DNA test of ancestry. So I had a very privileged life with my with my husband. At the end of the day, though, money doesn't make you happy. It doesn't buy you happiness. Getting that young girl a going onto this path around my own orphanage you know this young girl now is now a young woman she's a very independent young lady she
0: works in one of the top hotels thank you for listening to season 7 7 million bakes a Vietnam podcast I'm your host Neil McKay become a member of the 7 million bakes community and you'll get free tickets to our event free 7 million bakes face masks episodes of Dear early behind-the-scenes content and invites to special events for community members. The link is in the show description, so check it out and join today. Thank you so much to our existing community members. We look forward to seeing you again soon. This season, we've gifted sponsorship of a Vietnam podcast to two amazing charities close to our hearts, the Blue Dragon Children's Foundation in the North and Saigon Children's Charity in the South. Please check out the links in the description to learn more about these amazing organizations and donate if you can. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. ...and placed in an orphanage herself. She's a Mare Asian, which is half Vietnamese and half Black, with an American soldier father. She was then adopted into a white English family, which unfortunately wasn't as happy as hoped. Despite this difficult upbringing, she became a trained chef, gained a business degree and started a very successful beauty business. But she sold all of her possessions, including a £500,000 home and sports car, to fund the Alambe Orphanage here in Vietnam. I'm excited to share today the story of my guest, Suzanne T Hien. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, Let's talk about Alambe Orphanage, then tell us more about the orphanage that you started here.
1: Yeah, Lambie Orphanage. A lot of people ask me, you know, was it something that I'd always wanted to do? And the answer, truthfully, is no. It wasn't on my radar. You know, I was happily, I was was married. And really, it all came about because in 2006, I actually went back to Vietnam for the first time to see my country. And I I went for just a two-week holiday. and. I fell in love with Vietnam, but obviously when you only go there for a holiday, you only see the best parts. And so I decided to actually go back out there by myself with the blessing of my husband who stayed back in the UK. So after the two week holiday, I then went back three months later and I actually spent a year in 2007 in Vietnam. And I did a TEFL course and taught English. But in between my spare time, I worked at two orphanages. So I worked at a government run and a private run. And I realized that there are so many children still being abandoned. And I think the first time I walked into an orphanage, it was like somebody had cracked me in the face because it's a sudden reality that, oh my God, this, This was me all those years ago in in the war. Just, you know, seeing these kids in an orphanage, just sitting on the floor looking blank, just staring at the wall. not being motivated. And yeah, it it was a wake-up call, and and I, you know, it made me realise just how lucky I was. And then for the next couple of years, I kept in touch with the orphanages and would fly out you know, every year and spend a month with the kids. And then on this particular, on my last visit, one of my last visits, which was in 2010, beginning of 2010, there was one child that I sort of got to know quite well. Her English wasn't that great, but, you know, we kind of understood each other. And I remember having this conversation with her and saying to her, you know, What are your dreams and ambitions? And she was 16 at the time and she was like, I just want to go to school and I want to go to college and I want to go to tourism and I want to work in a hotel, but that's not going to happen because the orphanage she was in, the owner was basically using her as slave labor to look after the babies. So she wasn't allowed to go out
2: and. And she said, so nobody
1: loves me, nobody cares about me, so I might as well go and kill myself. I was absolutely devastated. And I just sort of sat there and I tried to convince her and myself that she had something to live for, but I realised actually she didn't. And she asked me, you know, can you, can you not stay or can I come and live with yeah. you? And I said, you know, I can't because I have to go back to the UK to earn the money so I can come and see you. And, you know, after that conversation, I was actually leaving the very next day to get on, to go back to the UK. And, and I remember saying goodbye to this young girl and trying to convince them not to do anything stupid. And I, and I sat on that plane back to the UK. And as you know, the flight to the UK is about 14 hours. This is a long time to be sitting on the plane. And all I could think about was this last conversation. And I literally got off the plane, got home, sat on the computer and then sat up all night doing research on orphanages and and how to go about it. And I suddenly realized that actually what I wanted to do was actually give this girl some hope. And I decided there and then to actually open up my own orphanage. And then it was a case of how do I go about it? So me and my husband had already split up in 2009 and it was an amicable split you know and I always say you know there was three people in that marriage towards the end and it was always me my ex-husband and Vietnam. Vietnam was the other mistress because I'd fallen in love with Vietnam And, and after 2007 when I came back to the UK I really struggled to go back to my old way of life and there was always that pull to Vietnam and I always knew at some point I'd go back. I just didn't know what, what capacity. And so in 2009, I made the actual decision to actually walk away from my marriage. It was one of the hardest things I, I had to do and I, and we talked it through and I was very honest and we were both very honest with each other. I said to my ex-husband, you know, I, I need to go back to Vietnam. I want to go back to Vietnam. I don't know as what I'm going to do, but I don't want to have to choose between you and Vietnam. I don't want to get to the point where I start to get resentful. And so I told him I wasn't happy. And so, you know, we're very, we're very open and honest and we both decided to walk away from each other. But it was still very important that we would make friends, which we have done. So as I'm sitting there, you know, in in the beginning of 2010, doing my research, I decided that I wanted to open up my own orphanage. And I could have done it a couple of ways. I could have gone down the NGO route, uh, or I could have gone down the company route and got a corporate company to sponsor me. But actually, I decided if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this by myself the way I want to do it. And so the only way to do that was to actually fund it myself. So I remember phoning my ex-husband and asked him to come round because I was still living in my household home. Uh, he came round and I sat him down and I said, look, you know, you know, I've just come back from Vietnam. And he was like, yeah, yeah, how was the trip? And I said, yeah, it was great, blah, blah. And I said, but I've decided I know what I want to do with my life now. And he said, what's that? And I said, I want to open up my own orphanage. And I've decided... Um, I'm going to fund it myself and so I need to sell the house. And he was just like, "Uh, okay, all right. And he's like, if that's what you want to do, let's do it. And, and that's, you know, that was what my relationship with my ex-husband was like. We were very much still together as in supporting each other. And so we literally. For about a month, we researched everything. I decided to sell the house and the home and the car. So put that on sale. And then I literally flew back to Vietnam four weeks later just to see this this little girl. And and I told her what I was doing. I said, look, I'm actually going to come back for you. Give me six months. I still give myself a deadline. Six months, I'll be back out. I'm going to get you removed from the orphanage now. And uh, I'm going to support you. I'm going to get you into school, and that's what I did. So I got her removed from the orphanage. We got her into a little room, and I paid for it, and we got her into school. I then flew back to England, and then literally those six months were just a mad six months because it was it was like having to get a website up and running. I've got no idea how to do a website. So I literally just went on Facebook on my Facebook page and I said, does anybody know how to do a website? This is what I'm doing. And the thing is, I, I'm a very private person. So, you know, I'd been supporting these orphanages for the last couple of years, very privately. So to suddenly, you know, have to sort of go onto Facebook and say, look, I need help because I'm doing this was a huge thing for me. And luckily, uh, A guy came forward who was actually with another Vietnamese adoptee girl. He happened to be a web designer. And so we met up and he designed my website for free. And then he came on board uh, the charity as well. And it's just one of those things. It's like, you know, bowling alley where you throw uh, a ball down the alley. It suddenly, you know, you you have this idea, and then suddenly everything clicks into place. You know, you get a strike, and suddenly all these people come forward, and, it, and it's kind of like, you know, we want to support you, we'll help you. And so, six months later, it was kind of, it actually, I couldn't believe just how everything fell into place. And I, you know, I got the perfect cash buyer and, you know, sold my car straight away and literally, Six months later, I was literally getting on the plane to Vietnam with just a suitcase and a laptop and a vision in my head because there is only so much you can do of planning. And, you know, we kind of planned everything on paper. You know, we got the charity registered in the UK. I'd done a lot of media and press, which... Came as a surprise to me because I really didn't think anybody'd be interested, and suddenly I was catapulted into the sort of media forefront, which was quite daunting. And again, that came about because I was selling my house, and suddenly, you know, my my estate agent put this ad and this sort of ad in the paper saying, you know, mad English woman decides to sell house um, to go and open up an orphanage. and uh, and then media girl who just lived in the same area, saw it and then contacted me and said she worked for ITV and could she come and interview me? And I was like, ooh. And then it just snowballed from there. And so, you know, suddenly, you know, I was kind of in the press. And for me, that was that was quite daunting. And yeah, and then I, I literally arrived in Vietnam. And then I actually went and got this young girl the very next day. I have to admit, when I got to Vietnam and I sat in the hotel, I literally just burst into tears because I was like, "What have I done? I've I've left all my friends to go and do this mad thing. This is too much for me." And and then I went and got her the next day, and then literally it it was just, you know, hundred percent full speed ahead. A month later, we got the Alambi House and. And then, you know, moved the young girl in and, and then built it up from there. And, and you know, and, and so far we've put 13 kids through school. Some have gone on to college. They've all discovered their own dreams and passions. And the thing is, a Lambie orphanage was not like any other orphanage. A lot of orphanages in Vietnam are very big, very institutionalized and have, you know, on average between 40 and a hundred kids. To me, obviously I had to do it within my means. You know, I I wasn't, I mean, a lot of people think I was a millionaire, but I, I certainly wasn't a millionaire. I had a certain amount of money and, you know, and I had to be able to support these kids with that money. And, and yeah, and it, it was kind of, I want, I wanted to land be to be a home most, most importantly, I think for me being a Vietnamese orphan myself and being adopted and the fact that my adoption wasn't great. The thing is with any adopted kid, any foster kids, any street kid, the most important thing for us is actually as the sense of being wanted. We all want to belong. And, and that's not, you know, everybody, I would say, that's, you know, wants the sense of wanting to be wanted and wanting to belong. And, you know, I wanted to create a safe home environment for these kids and a home where they knew they were safe, they knew they were loved. And that was very important to me.
0: We've shared some emotional stories on this podcast and I've I saved myself from being reduced to tears, but I was as close as I've ever been and I'm as close as I've ever been right now to being reduced to tears on this. It's really beautiful and your story of this girl that you're helping. I'm not gonna lie, I thought I was gonna go in a different direction. That's partly why I was in tears there. I was like, Oh my god, please tell me this girl is okay. So the fact that you were able to get get back and And help the 16 year old that was being basically treated like a slave is beautiful. So that's incredible. Unbelievable story. So we've touched on it a little bit. Do you want to go back and then share with our listeners if you feel comfortable about your adoption and what happened after being, as I said in the introduction, you were found on the street after the war?
2: Yeah. I
1: mean, the thing is, a lot of people, when, you know, when they say, when they find out I'm adopted, and I think this is the reaction to most people when you say you're adopted. Their reaction is, oh, isn't that lovely? Your parents must have been lovely people. You must have had a lovely childhood. And I have to say no, because to me, adoption is very much like a lottery ticket. You don't know the family you're going to. You get this ticket, and you're either going to get the golden ticket and you're going to get an amazing family, or you're going to get the booby prize and get a terrible family. Sadly, for me, I got a booby prize. Now, I was born in 1969. Not even sure if that's actually my my actual year. Because the thing is, I was born in the height of the Vietnam War. I was felt quite young underneath a bush as a baby by a policeman. This is what I've been told by a policeman and taken to the nearest orphanage in Saigon, which at the time was called Hoi De Can. The orphanage itself is still there. It's now actually the home for the blind people when they do blind, blind uh, massages. And the buildings are being used exactly the same. But in the war, it was actually called Ho Chi And because I'm mixed race, you know, as we all know, the Vietnam War, the Americans got involved, and, you know, in war there's always casualties. There's deaths, injuries, and the Vietnam War. The other casualty was actually orphan children, and with the mixed race children we weren't actually wanted because with mixed-race children, obviously our skin is darker, our hair is different. And, you know, some Vietnamese saw the American, you know, the Americans coming in as not a good thing. And so everything connected to the Americans was seen as bad. And, you know, there was a lot of children that were produced in the war. And for us, being in the orphanage, We were always the last to get food. We were always the last to be looked after. Luckily for me, some English nurses were connected to a a religious organisation, came to Vietnam in the war, and actually started to look after us children. Realised there's loads of children here that have been orphaned. And so they sent word back to the UK saying, you know, these children need to be adopted. Now, When you're found on the street, you know, I was literally found on the street, taken to the orphanage. I was weighed. I was given a birthday. I was given a name. And that was my identity. So up to this day, I still don't know my real birthday. I still don't know my real name. And that's something that I have to live with. And that's very hard. Because when you don't know your own identity, you really don't know who you are also the fact that i don't know how i was conceived you know um, i was either conceived by love from a uh, vietnamese woman to an american soldier my mother was either a prostitute and got pregnant or my mother was raped and those are the three scenarios and i'm being very brutal here because i have to be i have to be very realistic with me and my background and and so that's something I've had to live with. So when I got adopted, it became very big news in the UK. And two, my, my adoptive parents were linked to this religious, religious organisation. So they came forward and said they want to adopt a, a Vietnamese girl. <clears throat> it all went through, took a couple of years. So I actually arrived in the UK in 1972 at the age of three. Now, I can't actually remember my arrival. <laughs> I was in the newspapers because I was met at Gatwick Airports, and so there's photographs. And again, the media interests. And growing up, my, my adoptive parents were both whites. My dad is Irish, and my mum's English, and they had two kids on their own, and then they adopted me. And then a year later, they actually adopted another Vietnamese baby from a different orphanage. But growing up, my parents were very religious and I would say fanatical to the point where they were, in my mind, religion was everything to them. And so growing up for me was very, very hard in a religious environment my mum was very much in control of the house. And growing up, both, all my siblings turned to Christianity and became born-again Christians. And for some reason, I didn't. I just, I just kind of rebelled against it to the point where my mum in public would call me Suzanne, because that was the name that they had given me as my English name. At home, I was called the devil's child. And every time I was naughty, every time I upset her, it was literally, you are the devil's child. And she would literally scream in my face, your real mother didn't want you. The Vietnamese nurses didn't want you. Grace, you're ugly. You're this, you're that. Nobody wanted you. We saved you you should be grateful, you should thank us, and this is how you you repay us. And that was literally my life until I left home at
2: 18. A lot of the time my mom would hit me,
1: would often not feed me. And it wasn't until years and years later that I realized that it was actually child abuse that I went through. But the thing is, when you grow up in an environment, and you're sheltered from the outside world, because I wasn't allowed to mix with non-Christian religious people. So my environment was very enclosed. And it wasn't until I left home at 18 that I, I sort of saw the bigger world from the outside, and it was, it was a, an eye-opener. But those years of my adopted parents were horrific, and and I'm not going to go into detail as, as to how horrific, but that's basically the gist of it. And, and so, you know, for me, my adoption wasn't great. I never felt, I've, in fact, my mother never told me she loved me. She, she only ever hugged me once in my whole life. And that was, when I was age 21 when she did finally hug me. And because she'd never hugged me before, I didn't know how to react. And at the age of 21, to finally have your mum hug me, and I still don't know to this day why she did it. But, you know, with my other siblings, she treated them differently because they had given their life to God and they were Christians and so they were the chosen ones and they were special. And whereas I, on the other hand, didn't. And it was kind of, she tried every single way to sort of make me become a Christian. And every single way I I rebelled. And even though, you know, it would have been, my life would have been far easier if I had just conformed. But I think there's always been that very independent fighting streak in me, even from the days in the orphanage when my nurses would write to my parents in England, tell them of their child they were adopting, and in those letters there were things that I look back and, and it was like, you know, she's got you know this, this little baby's very she's a fighter, she's done this, and she's done that And so I have always been very truthful with myself to the fact that I, I won't conform just to make other people happy, and so if it means I'm standing on the outer circle, then I would rather do that. And I always say that I am unique. I don't want to be a copy. Why would I want to be a copy of everybody else? Why would I want to follow other people? I am in charge of my own book. I couldn't write the beginning. But, you know, I can write the ending and I can write the middle. And as soon as I left home, I, re- I rewrote that book to the way that I wanted it to be.
0: I, I never like to give, you know, meaningless, empty platitudes. But, and so it probably doesn't mean anything. But I am so, so sorry to hear that. And, and it just makes me so, so mad and so, so sad. Because you are right, you know, like what you said right at the beginning about adoption and then it's the kind of fairy tale movie version, it's like, oh my god, you've been adopted, that's so amazing and and yet yeah, doesn't always turn out that way. I mean, as a as a I like to think as a sane normal person, I just can't comprehend why any human being would, would act that way. Do you still have a relationship with your parents? No, I don't. my
2: my adopted mum, about 18 years ago,
1: and funnily enough, you know, she got breast cancer. I'd actually stopped talking to my parents at that point. And then I found out she would got breast cancer and I actually went to see them. <clears throat> and then she had the operation and had the breast removed and then she got secondary cancer. And then we were told she had brain tumours and there was nothing that could be done. And even though my mum wasn't really speaking to me, what I decided to do was I actually gave up my job that I was doing at the time. And I actually nursed her until she passed away. And a lot of people ask me why. And to this day, I, I can't really say why. It was more of a case of, my adoptive mom, religion was everything to her, and she was she was a very shy person outside of religion, and she was never comfortable in a room full of strangers. If you spoke to her about Christianity, she was she could you know speak to the cows came home, and so for my mom, I just I just didn't want her to die in a room full of strangers, and. Because she had these brain, brain tumors and her body was shutting down, she, I got her moved to a hospice and yeah, and say so for about four weeks, I went
2: in every day. I fed her, I washed her, sat with her. And you could see that her brain was like
1: shutting down slowly and, and, and When, you know, when it comes to somebody dying, you know, that they do say to you, do you want to be there? And it's, you know, it's not something that you you really want to do. You don't want to actually see someone die. But I said yes, because I really didn't want her to die on her own. And my family, my dad, my Christian dad said no. My siblings said no. My younger brother, who was adopted, said yes. And on the day she died, I'd been with her for most of the day. And then I left once I'd fed her. And as I was driving home, I got the phone call to say that she deteriorated very quickly, a couple of hours later. And so, you know, they said, she, I don't think she's going to make the night. So I actually drove back to the hospice and I stayed with her. They contacted my brother. My brother said he would be there. He never turned up. And so at the end, it was literally me and my mum. And I sat there and I held her and I thought, how ironic is this? If my mum knew, because obviously everything had then shut down in her brain, she wasn't there. She was just, you know, a skeleton and just surviving. And 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 I just thought, if my mum knew. That the devil's child was the only person here holding her, and the so-called Christian people in my family were not here. She would be—I don't know what her reaction would have been. You know, would she still be calling me the devil's child? And yes, I—I—I I, I, I watched her pass away, and I held her while she died, and—and. And After she died, I then phoned the rest of my family and said she's passed. And a lot of people say to me, "Oh, you know, was it sad?" And yes, it 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 was sad, but not in the reasons that you would think it was sad because I knew that she died, and
0: I knew that she died. Not, and I never knew she loved me or not. So sorry. Very uh, obviously strong person and it's incredible that you did that as you said you everyone's question is why so i will not i will not ask you either uh, so were you able to make any sense of why she acted this way because to me i can't i can't understand it at all
2: no i never
1: have i mean after my after my mom died i i didn't speak to my adoptive parents, didn't speak to my dad, and didn't really speak to my brothers and sisters after that. At the funeral, a lot of people were saying, Oh, you must miss your mum, and I said, No, I don't. I said, because she was never the mum that I had wanted. You know, she's not the mum that you envisage as adopted child, you know, as you say in, in the Hollywood films like Annie and that, you know, they go off and they find their parents and they live happily ever after. That didn't actually happen with me. And so I'm I'm always honest with people who say, no, I don't miss her. I feel very cheated at the fact that she was never the mum that I wanted her to be, that she should have been. And that for her to actually admit she loved me, I would have to conform to her way of thinking. And that to me is not love. And so for me, with my orphan, a labby orphanage kids, it was very important to me that they knew that I loved them unconditionally and that no matter what they did I would always be there for them and I'd always love them I always made sure I told them they were beautiful they were handsome they were clever even when they failed their exams I was like that's okay you know I'm still proud of you you you, you tried your best and I still love you and so you know maybe next time let's just try and aim for one point you know and that to me was very important because I, what I did with my Lambie kids was I literally did everything with them that I had wanted from my adoptive parents. And so I took the idea in my head and I transported it and put it into reality. And, and, you know in in these Hollywood movies, you see the mum's dancing with hairbrushes around the kitchen and stupid things like that and And that is exactly what we did at Laby. you know it was a very happy place. you know, I'm not saying my kids were angels because they weren't you know you know when you've got, <laughs> you know, when you got 13, thirteen kids from different backgrounds with their own issues from their past. at times it was hard. And then other times, you know, the house was just full of laughter and, and that to me was very important. And so after my mum died, I kind of stopped beating myself up about, you know, why do they do this and why did they adopt me? And and just realised that actually I don't know, you know, that that answer died with her. And my dad I didn't speak to, so I just decided that actually, do I really need that answer? You know, I know who I am and I know the people that in my life that love me for who I am, and those are my friends and other people that I kind of adopted as my own parents and
0: that was enough. That's an amazing viewpoint and it's amazing that you can find that after going through such a traumatic you know upbringing and again I'm just so sorry that you had to do that you know on a, on a personal level obviously I hate that we're all such selfish human beings but it makes me think about myself it makes me realize even more what an amazing upbringing that I had you know like in, in any kid I had a tough times we didn't have the most money and things like this but I guess your description makes me realize you don't realize what the opposite could be, so you you have that. And so maybe anyone listening might realize this. Well, it makes me want to call up my mom and be like, yeah, thank you. So, yeah, I can't imagine. And it's amazing that you've been able to to turn that round into something so positive with the orphanage. I was going to ask earlier, so you went to Vietnam for the first time 2007, you said? 2006. 2006. What? Were your opinions then of Vietnam before 2006?
1: Before 2006, to be honest, my opinion of Vietnam was very negative because of my upbringing. I was quite, I was ashamed that I was adopted. I was ashamed that I was Vietnamese. I was ashamed that I was half black. I was ashamed of my skin color. And so, you know, when I was growing up, when I left home, I didn't really tell people that I was adopted. I was just, you know, I'm Suzanne, didn't talk about Vietnam, never acknowledged my Vietnamese name. Because when, you, when you're in that environment and you're growing up and you're being told, like, you know, no one's wants you, you, you know, you're ugly, you're mixed race. And, and you, you know, you actually start believing that you are ugly, you are stupid, you are this, you are that. And so when you've been in great for years and years of that, and, and your self-esteem and your confidence is very low, because of that, you know, I went into relationships with an understanding of I wasn't worthy. You know, I wasn't worthy of love. I wasn't worthy of, of you know, nice things. And... You know, some relationships were very abusive. And even though for years, even though when I left home, I was still trying to get my mum and dad to love me. And I tried and I tried and I tried. And so for me, growing up, Vietnam was never a good thing. Never. And then after my mum died, I felt that I was released from that And then I decided to actually go and see Vietnam for myself. And I was very apprehensive. And I also thought that there would be people that looked like me. Because the thing is, when you grow up in a white environment, you know, I went to a white school and in those days it was like there was one Asian, one Chinese, one black, you know, and it was very white dominated. My whole life, you know, within the church is very white dominated. And so I grew up with a very confused identity because I didn't know if I was, what do I call myself? Because I've certainly, I'm not white. And it's quite obvious I was different from my adoptive parents and family. And I'm not Asian looking, but I'm also not black looking. And so... I didn't know what to call myself. And so when I went to Vietnam for the first time, I I assumed that I'd get off the plane and there'd be loads of people that looked like me and I would finally feel that I belonged somewhere. Got off the plane, walked out into the the heat that suddenly hits you. (laughs) Yeah, "Yeah."
0: I remember that first time as well, yeah. And then you
1: just see these, these rows and rows of, Vietnamese people waiting at the airport and I literally scanned all their faces and no one looked like me and I felt a huge disappointment because it was suddenly a shock of reality that still no one looks like me and that two weeks it was an emotional journey because I actually went and, you know, I actually went and visited my old orphanage, which was called Alambi, because I was in two orphanages. I was in Hoi De first and then moved to another orphanage for preparation for the flight to the UK. And that was called Alambi. And when I went back to Vietnam in 2006, it
2: was just, I just... I don't know,
1: it was like a mag- this magical place that had always sort of been in the back of my mind and it was a place that I was born and it was a place that had a huge part in my beginnings, but I actually knew nothing about it, couldn't remember anything about it. So I was going in with very fresh, open eyes and it was just, wow, you yeah. know, all these motorbikes, the smells, the sounds—it was just intoxicating, and and yeah, and it was just. Even though I still didn't see anybody that looked like me, and I realised that I most probably would never meet anybody that looked like me, but I literally fell in love with Vietnam, and it wasn't—it suddenly wasn't this big sort of stigma, and so. That's why I decided to go back three months later to actually live there. Because for me, I needed to understand my background. I needed to try and come to terms with it. And so that's what I did. Uh, That year that I lived in Vietnam, I immersed myself in the Vietnamese culture. I made sure that I didn't live in an expat area. I lived within the Vietnamese areas. So that I could understand Vietnam, I could understand their culture. I slowly made friends with Vietnamese people who I still am friends with, even now, all these years later. And I can honestly say that year I went on an emotional roller coaster of feelings, of discovery of myself. And at the end of that, I actually came to terms with my past. And I was actually really proud to turn around and say, Do you know what? My name is Suzanne T. and Hook. I'm half Vietnamese and I'm half Black American. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. And yeah, it was, so for me, that, you know, going back in 2006 was the beginning of my journey, which then led me, to this young girl, which then led me to open up the orphanage. So, you know, things happen for a reason. You don't know at the time why these things happen, but my mum died. It gave me the relief to go back to my country. And I I am very proud to say that I am Vietnamese and people say to me, do you class yourself as Vietnamese or do you class yourself as black? I class myself as Vietnamese because that's where I was born. I acknowledge I am black. My dad, they say, is a black American soldier.
2: So I, I'm i a
1: little dolly mixture, as I say. You know, I, I'm lots of little things, and that's what makes me unique because I am not like anybody else. I am not a copier, and I am proud to be that.
0: For anyone who's watching on YouTube and if you, you're listening to this you won't be able to see the smile just beaming on my face because this has been just uh, emotional to listen to and I knew some of this background but to hear it from yourself has been emotional but to hear you say there so proudly and so strongly my name is Suzanne TN Cook and accepting who you are it just it's, that's just amazing to listen to you say that and to hear the strength in that and obviously to hear that it must have been such a cathartic experience to come here and and I'm glad that you've had that and you've been able to deal with it in that way. So, Yeah, that is just amazing. I could just hear the strength in your voice there saying that. So that's beautiful. And I love that you call it a dolly mix-up or a dolly mixture because a lot of our listeners are not from the UK so they won't even know what a dolly mixture is. Just a bag of of candy made up of all all sorts of different candy. But that is uh, incredible that you've uh, accepted that and you you can say that so proudly now. And my last question on that is, have you, with DNA, have you ever made any attempts to track down either your mother or father? Or is that even possible? I don't know.
1: I have tried. Yeah, I've done my DNA. I've done my DNA test with Ancestry. other
2: DNA sites, and it's, well, Vietnamese adoptee,
1: it's a very personal decision, and it's one that I would, when I would say to people, when they're going to do it, be prepared, because it is a roller coaster of emotions. And for me, when I did it, for years, I've, I, you know, I thought about it, but then I was always too busy and I was doing the orphanage. And, and then as the orphanage has come to an end, so I decided, well, I'm in Vietnam, let's just, let's do this, you know, because what I don't want to do is, is have to leave and then find out all these years later that my mom was actually there. So I did this DNA test.
2: And a lot of people, try to help me.
1: And and there was one point where I thought I'd found my mother in Vietnam and, and then found out that actually this woman wasn't my mother and I was completely and utterly crushed. I then also found, I haven't quite found my a miracle father, we're not 100% sure if the family that I have found is the family, but again, disappointment, and it's it's one of those things that I always say, when you go and do a DNA test, you are actually opening up Pandora's box. And when you open up Pandora's box, you have to deal with the consequences of that. May that be good or bad. For me, the whole experience was exhausting. It was emotional. It had highs and lows. At the end, it just came as a big disappointment and a lot of heartbreak. And so... After that, I then decided that actually I couldn't mentally cope with it because I was so upset and heartbroken that I have decided to actually stop looking. I may go back to it in a couple of years when I feel that I can emotionally cope with it, but mentally it does completely screw you up. So I would say to anybody who does a DNA test and wants to try and find their birth mother and birth father, make sure you have a really good support mechanism around you, which I I didn't really have because I had a couple of friends in Vietnam. But again, it's one of those things that they find they don't really understand, When you're adopted, they don't understand how important this is because for yourself, like you, you know, your birth mother, you know, your birth father, they tell you stories of, oh, you know, when you were younger, you did this when you were, you know, I don't have any of that. And so for me, it's like trying to do a jigsaw puzzle without the picture on the box. And you are just picking up pieces and trying to see if they fit. Sadly for me, none of the pieces fitted. And so I still have this box with no picture. And maybe one day when I'm strong enough and mentally I can cope with it, then I may go back to it. But right now, no. And so I just I, I just have to come to terms with the fact that I may never know my real parents. I may never find those answers. But for me, I have the people in my life that I call family. I have my lamby kids. I, I have a good support mechanism. And that's that's all I need at the moment. And, and I'm happy with my life. And I don't need to find my birth mother or my birth father to, to say that I am Vietnamese. I don't need that I know who I am and my birth mother for whatever reason gave me up I have no I'm not angry at her I'm not disappointed at her she has her reasons and because of that I was given a second chance and flown out of safety and so even though my childhood was crap I still was given a home. I still had a roof over my head. I still had a chance of an education. And years later, I took that and I used that and I turned it around. And so for that, I am grateful for my Vietnamese mother leaving me
0: because if she hadn't, I don't know where I would be. Well, you know, I I didn't want to actually ask that question, but you've answered it without me having to ask I was going to ask have you do you have basically what you just said there have you kind of weighed up and been like you just answered that despite having a crap upbringing are you still thankful in a way for you know like you said getting the education and, and getting the chance to where you are now so thank you for answering it without me asking because it's Thank you so much for sharing this story. its uh, I can't imagine how tough it is to come on with some random Scottish guy that you've never met and uh, share this story and with our listeners. And I know they will be really, really grateful to hear this. As I said, it's something that um, was never intended. But this season and over the last couple of seasons, it's becoming more and more to the forefront on this podcast as we speak to more and more people. And similar to like you said yourself about you kind of going back there and um, going back to Vietnam and and reconnecting with your roots, this is something that we're finding out through this podcast and and just through general life. That's becoming a really common path now for kind of first generation Vietnamese children whose families left either because they were Vietnamese folk people or because they were, you know, they left after the war or for whatever reason they they left the country, their parents are Vietnamese. They were born in another country, so obviously the UK, Germany, Switzerland, America. We've had all these um, people on the show, and a lot of them come back to Vietnam because they want to reconnect with their roots. So even though they didn't have the same path as you and weren't adopted, they were still born and brought up in a different country and knew they were Vietnamese, but didn't really know what that meant. And so came back, and the common thing that uh, that i hear from all of these guests that come on is their parents are just like why are you going back to vietnam because you know they left and they can't understand why they would want to do that but it makes complete sense why you would want to reconnect with your roots and uh, yeah it's so amazing to hear that you did and you you're proud of that and you're proud vietnamese so again thank you so so much for sharing this one of the, I remember years ago when I first came here in Vietnam, I was making, talking on Reddit in a comments thread about being in Vietnam. And, and some guy asked me this question, and it, it was from a good place, but it seemed like the most ignorant question ever. He went, oh, do you see lots of, like, Asians when you're over there in Vietnam? And I'm like, dude, the war was, like, 50 years ago, man. Like, how many people do you think are walking up? You know? More Asian, and it's I think just because for Americans and whatnot, the Vietnam War is still so fresh that they think that that's that's life here, whereas life moved on a, a very long time ago.
1: Yes, I mean the thing is, with the Vietnam War, there there are still lots of Amerasians in Vietnam, and after the Vietnam War, you know when the North finally captured the South. You know, the orphanages were all closed very, very quickly, and uh, the children that weren't adopted, especially the Amerasians, were were kind of dumped on the streets. And over the years, you've had the American come back and, and, you know, and, and acknowledge that there was loads of Amerasian babies and children, and then you had I think it was in 1985, don't quote me on that, but 1985, where they started to allow the Emirations children, if they could prove that they had an American father, blah, 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 to file papers to go to America and, and get citizenship and
2: stuff. And the thing is, years
1: later, you know, when I was running the orphanage, I was... Lucky enough to actually meet some Vietnamese operations that were still in Vietnam. And that to me was my eye opener because, and, and, you know, I mean, I have been asked this question before, you know, do you think if you weren't adopted, what would your life be in Vietnam if you hadn't been adopted? Do you think it would have been better? And for me, I've always said, I don't know. I finally got those answers years later when I met the Amorations. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about a sense of belonging because for me, that's very important. Because I don't really belong in the, in the Black community, I don't really belong in the Vietnamese community, I certainly didn't belong in my family. Because I don't look Asian, I don't look black, I don't look white. And, and it's kind of, you know, where do I go? This opportunity came where I was suddenly, you know, sitting at a wedding in this room full of admiration, children, adults now, from the war, all various ages. And they literally sat there and it was like all various shapes. But there were people that looked a bit like me not exactly like me, but they, you know, they, they had the darker skin tone. They had like, you know, it was, it was literally this room full of admirations, all different colors. And I sat there and, and I listened to their stories and I listened to the way they were treated after the war, the heartbreak they had to go through, the treatment that they got. And I sat there and they all said to me and, and, The one thing that I got from them was they all called themselves American. They all classed themselves as American. And they were saying to me, you know, you're one of us. You're like us. You know, you're Emeration. You know, welcome to the family. But And I sat there and I literally was near to tears because I actually sat there and I thought for years and years and years I've wanted to meet another Emiration, somebody that looked like me. And I finally did it. And I still didn't feel I belonged because I actually felt like I was an alien because I hadn't gone through their suffering. I know that my adopted parents weren't great. I know I had a really shit childhood and blah, 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 but when I listened to their stories, theirs was 10 times worse. And I sat there and I was just thinking. I'm not like you. I haven't suffered the way you have. I haven't been rejected by my own country. I haven't been rejected. I haven't been rejected to the state where I have to go and sell my blood to get food. I haven't got to the stage where I have had to live on the street and I felt like a fraud. I honestly did, and I was so near to tears because I was just, I didn't know how to deal with it. And the fact that they classed themselves as American and they they all saw America as a land of hope and glory and they didn't want to be known as Vietnamese, they were, we are American. And it's very funny because when you look at documentaries about the Vietnam War. From the American side, they call it the Vietnamese War. From the Vietnamese side they call it the American War. And so for me, I'm just like, well what do I call it? Do I call it the Vietnamese War? Do I call it the American War? And to this day I still don't know. I say I was born in the Vietnam War and that my dad is black American soldier. That's all I know. And so I still I acknowledge the American side, I acknowledge the black side, but I also acknowledge the Vietnamese side. And I look at these admirations and they've all come through the other road. They are making lives for themselves on different levels. But I know that actually being adopted was I was saved and those nurses that flew out in a in war zone, saved my life. It wasn't my adoptive parents that saved my life. I I always say that. I always say it was actually the nurses that saved my life and 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 gave me that second chance. And so to me, it was very important that I give something back. Because I think in society, we we are all very selfish at times on different levels, and we are all very materialistic at times on different levels. And I didn't realise really how materialistic I had become over the years because I was married to a man that was very high up in a company. My lifestyle was very, I suppose, privileged, to the point where I would fly first class. You know, I lived in America for a year. I would travel to the south of France for my winter wardrobe. I would travel to New York for my summer wardrobe. I owned 300 pairs of shoes. I would, you know, we had a cleaner in our house. I drove a Mercedes convertible. So I had a very privileged life with my my husband. At the end of the day, though, money doesn't make you happy. It doesn't buy you happiness. And for me, I realized I actually wasn't happy when I lived in Vietnam in 2007. And I realized, actually, all this money doesn't make you happy. I could die tomorrow, and what what am I going to do with it? And so for me, after hearing and speaking to this young girl, I just decided you know, there is nothing stopping me. I, I have the chance to actually give this girl a second chance. Like I was given a second chance. I just decided to do it in a very big way. I suppose a very, and one of these people, when I get an idea, I just jump straight to the deep end and then it's either sink or swim. And so I literally jumped into the deep end and I gave everything up. And and believe me, it was the most liberating thing I've ever done. Believe me when I say, when you give everything up, it is actually quite liberating. And you realise that actually you don't need a big house. You don't need a flashy car. You don't need 300 pairs of shoes. Actually, all you need to do is just be true to yourself. And... You will find happiness. And for me, getting that young girl and going onto this path of opening up my own orphanage, you know, this young girl now is now a young woman. She's a very independent young lady. She works in one of the top hotels in tourism. She speaks fluent English and, and obviously Vietnamese. And she is happy, she's independent she's a strong independent woman and all my kids have all grown up to be independent and strong and they have they all speak um English they all have the English sense of humor (laughs) and and they're all and I am you know I am just so proud of them really proud of them and they are true to themselves and as i say to them you know we can't do anything about our past but you know you're in charge of your the pen now and you can change the future and they have they have rewritten their stories and they've rewritten their stories to the extent that they have found their passions they have found what they that drives them and i and the what we did was we literally just gave them that safe environment that they could explore that and they could explore their own sexuality and they could explore who they are as, as, as their own identities. We just gave them the tools and, and they picked it up and they ran with it and I am so proud of them.
0: Incredible. Just absolutely incredible. Well, look, we'll finish up. And before we do, though, tell people listening, how can they support Alambi? What can they do to help? Where can they find more information?
1: Alambi itself is actually closed. I actually had to close the orphanage down in 2018. and came back to the UK in 2019, sadly, because of my health. Even though Alambi is closed, We still support other orphanages and, you know, I have friends out in Vietnam who help other orphanages and they do quiz nights where, you know, anybody can go to these nights and and there's prizes and the money that is raised is then dished out to other orphanages. I have a very good friend called Matt Ryan who actually runs a fish and chip shop called Union Jack.
0: And we he, we know Matt we know Matt Ryan well. He, he yeah, up on this podcast often, and he does a lot for charity. And
1: so, if you want to support other charities, you know there are lots of orphanages out there and, and smaller orphanages. Um, and so I would, you know, Matt Ryan is is a really good guy to to go to and he will be able to tell you what orphanages he supports and, and what to do and where to go. And so for me, you know, with the Lambie, we, we still have kids going through the system, but we, you know, we have enough money to get them through to college. And so the money that we have now, we actually still look after other orphanages itself. is actually closed but there are still lots of orphanages out there and uh, you know there's orphanages called orphanages for girls that have been abused there's you know other orphanages called the bamboo yeah
0: yeah so I, did, I didn't actually tell you so what my my career is in charity and fundraising and that's what i did for a, a few years here in saigon i worked for a school where we we did the kind of charity program for the school so i've worked with Many of these organizations, so there's Green Bamboo, there's Little Rose in D7, Um, Mason Chance is an amazing one that helps people with disabilities. And I didn't even tell you, so this season of the podcast is actually, we gifted sponsorship to Blue Dragon Children's Foundation in Hanoi and Saigon Children's Charity in Saigon, obviously. So this whole season, they've been on the, the front cover of all the artwork. There's a shout out to them at the beginning, in the middle of the podcast as well. We'll give another one to them now. And the links are actually in the notes. So if anyone wants to donate to Saigon Children's Charity or Blue Dragon Children's Foundation, please do that or any one of these amazing organizations that Suzanne and myself have just mentioned. One of the most amazing things happened a couple of weeks ago, Suzanne, you'll like this. I woke up, I had an email from um, the woman at Blue Dragon who I talk to often because we are big supporters of Blue Dragon. And she's like, Neil. Somebody's just committed a monthly donation to Blue Dragon because they heard you talking about us on the podcast and heard the ad on the podcast. So even if there's only one person that's donated because of this sponsorship, then I'm so, so happy. So I hope you can donate more.
1: I mean, yes. I mean, the thing is, a lot of people say, oh, you know, I don't know if I can help. I don't know, you know, if I'll make a difference. And what I've told people over the years is every little bit helps. Literally, especially when you've got, you know, running an orphanage and and you're putting the kids through school. As you know, in Vietnam, nothing is free. So we have to pay for the school fees. We have to pay for the books that they learn from. We have to pay for their pens, their paper, everything. And so, you know, if somebody is going to donate, Even if it's like 1 million Vietnam dong or 500 or $20, believe me when I say this, it goes a long way. You know, it really does make a difference to these kids because like $1 Dong, will actually put a kid through school for a month. It will pay for their, you know, their their shoes. It will pay for their school books, $20 dollars will help pay for their parking, their bicycles at school. And so when people say, oh, I don't know if I can make a difference, believe me when I say this. And, and I, for me, I have been very lucky with Alambi that I have met a lot of people that have donated, given up their time and, you know, even given up your time to go and go and visit these orphanages, spend an hour with these kids it makes a huge difference because they're interacting with the outside world. They're hearing different accents. And the kids in
2: these orphanages, it's very, very simple.
1: All they want to do is go to school, get an education, better themselves, and have a sense of belonging. Those are the three things that they want. And, you know, with these orphanages, when they have these children, they do struggle. It is hard financially. And so when I, I ask people to really, if you can donate to the links that we, that you've put up and it does make a difference and that $20, that $1 million, that 500 Vietnam dog, it will make a difference. And, and I would also like to just say, you know, to anyone that's listening that has helped my orphanage and Lambie over the years, I could not have done it without you guys, I could not have done it without your support and with your support and your help and your understanding and your love and the time that you gave us and the money that you gave us, I have been able to help 13 kids go through school, have an education and come out the other end confident young people and to that, I actually want to just say thank you. Thank you for taking that time. And I, you know, yes, I, I opened up the orphanage and yes, I set it up. But do you know what? I didn't do it on my own. I did it with a lot of help from support in Vietnam, from around the world. And I really just want to say on behalf of me and my kids, thank you. Because it, it was amazing. It was, it was amazing 10 years. and. I am so thankful for what we achieved doing that together.
0: I can't think of a better time to finish. I'm not going to ask the final questions that I sent you because I think this is perfect to finish at this point. Thank you so, so much. I cannot thank you enough for finishing this season seven of uh, 7 Million Bikes, final episode 10, for sharing your story, for taking your time out of your day. I hope we can stay in touch. and. I hope we can raise some money. So again, listen to Suzanne, go in the links, look at those, the, you can donate directly, give whatever you can. So Suzanne, have an amazing day and thank you so, so much.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of 7 Million Bikes, of Vietnam podcast. We hope you enjoy hearing our guest stories. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much to our producer, Lewis Wright, for making sure the show sounds as good as possible for you. And also a big thanks to the 7 Million Bikes community members and everyone who supports us. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can join the community today. The link is in the description and you'll get free event tickets, free 7 Million Bikes face mask and invites to special member events. Also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. And I'm still ashamed to say this tiktok most of all if you can please donate to saigon children's charity or blue dragon's children foundation's covid appeals remember we have six seasons of stories to share with you so check them out if you haven't already and we hope you can listen to future episodes too so you can laugh connect and discover cheers